I'm going to jump right in this morning and invite you to turn in your Bibles there. It's, if you're using the blue Bible that we provide, it's on page 991. And this, this series is going to be a quick uh, looking at Revelation. Revelation is 22 chapters, and we are going to be doing the whole thing in eight weeks. But I don't know, for many of you who've grown up reading the Bible or maybe grown up in church, Revelation is one of those books that is often confusing. I've often gone through the book of Revelation myself and at the end thought, what did I just read? And it's really unusual. And in this series, I hope even though it is short for the amount of material we are going to cover, my hope and my goal is that you will see the picture of what Revelation is trying to accomplish. And the book of Revelation is not a message that is supposed to tell us the details about what is to come. It is a book that is given to the church, it's very clear, telling us about how we are to live. In fact, that is the very nature of what it is trying to do. Because I'm not going to be reading all of chapter 1 through 3, I want to give you the structure of what we're going to be looking at here in just a second, and then I'm going to refer, so keep your Bibles open to Revelation 1 through 3 on page 991, and I'm going to refer you to verses over and over again. But Revelation chapters 1 through 3 follows this structure. Verses 1 through 3 is a prologue. Uh, The prologue is where John introduces why he is saying what he's saying. Chapters 4 through 11, he gives a greeting and he reveals that he is talking to the church. In uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, John gives a vision of Jesus, a very beautiful and unusual vision. And in chapters 2 and 3, John refers and writes to seven literal distinct churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time of his writing. And so here's what the book of Revelation is telling us. First, the author. The author is John, the apostle. He's the same man who wrote the gospel of John and uh, the same man who wrote the epistles or the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which we just finished looking at just a few weeks ago. And as we go through this book, you'll see that many of the same themes that were in, go through the gospel, and you'll even see them easier with the, uh, the letters of John, those same themes go throughout the book of Revelation. The second thing is the genre that we see. And John is, uh, the book of Revelation is unique, and John... Um, identifies the book of Revelation as not having one type of genre or type of literature, but as having three. The first type of literature it is, it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, it is a revelation or it is an apocalypse. What does this mean? uh, Apocalyptic literature is a type of genre or type of writing that was very familiar to the Old Testament reader and to the New Testament reader. It is very similar to the book of Ezekiel, And if you want this afternoon, you can go home and read Ezekiel 1 and see how the book starts with these flaming wheels and angels in the heavens. It's filled with symbolic visions. Daniel and Zechariah are like this in the Old Testament. Apocalyptic literature draws on symbolic dreams and envisions that include otherworldly images that are meant to teach us about the history of the world in light of its final outcome. It is meant to reveal God's perspective on the history of the world in light of its final outcome. The book is not a secret code about the end times and how you can figure out all the details. 
John expects his readers to look at these otherworldly images and he expects us to go back into the Old Testament and look up the references and see what they're all about. And so as we go through the book, especially after today, I'm going to draw your attention to some of those places. We may not read them all, for there's too many to read them all, but I'll at least draw your attention and let you look up the references later. So first, the book is apocalyptic. It is meant to reveal God's perspective on the history of the world in light of its final outcome. Second, the book is a prophetic book. It's a prophecy. Prophecy was always God's way of showing through a prophet a glimpse into the future for the purpose of giving comfort or warning to the people who heard it. A glimpse into the future to a people who were in crisis for the purpose of giving comfort or warning. You may have noticed in Old Testament prophecy even, not even all of the prophecies come true. Some of the prophecies aren't intended to come true. They're intended to cause the readers of the prophecy to repent. The most famous example of this is the prophecy that God gives to the prophet Jonah when he is supposed to go to Nineveh. Perhaps you remember this. Jonah goes to uh, Jonah has God come before him and says, God, Jonah, God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to the evil city of Nineveh, the capital of the evil Assyrian empire, and I want you to say that in 40 days I'm going to judge it and destroy it. There is no if, there is no hypothetical, it is tell them or they will be destroyed. And we are told in the book of Jonah that Jonah refuses to go to Nineveh. In fact, he takes a boat headed in the absolute opposite direction, and it is the very famous story of the book of Jonah where a huge storm comes about. The sailors finally are convinced to throw Jonah overboard because Jonah knows exactly why the storm is here in the story, and the fish spits up, the big fish spits Jonah up on the shore of Nineveh. Jonah goes to the town, and he gives the prophecy, in 40 days, God is going to destroy you. And the town repents and the prophecy is not fulfilled. Prophecy was God giving a glimpse into the future, sometimes of a potential future, to a people in crisis to either encourage them to repent or to give them comfort that God will win in the end. And third, the book of Revelation is clearly a letter. It is clearly a letter, a letter that is written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor, But, as you will see as we go throughout the entire book of Revelation, the number seven is representative. It stands for completion, and I will show you this over and over again as we continue to go throughout the book. And so while the context of the book of Revelation must be rooted in the context of these seven literal churches, it also is a message to the church at large about how we are to live. Now, what is the purpose? And this is really where we're going to spend the bulk, the the majority of our time. What is the purpose of the book of Revelation? For in fact, it is chapters 1 through 3 that is designed to give us this answer. What is the purpose? It is simply this, to encourage a suffering church to overcome. To encourage a suffering church to overcome. We might say instead of overcome, for that's kind of unusual language. I've adopted it because it's the actual language that's in the text. But we might say instead of overcome, to encourage a suffering church to faithfully endure 
whatever comes at them in life, to encourage a suffering church to endure faithfully no matter what comes at them in life. And you'll notice from the text that John, in his mind, he writes this book believing that the things that he is writing, verse 1, will soon take place. He writes this book with urgency because he believes, chapter 1, verse 3, that the time is near for the things that he is writing to take place. And so I get this statement to encourage a suffering church to overcome from the very flow of this text. And I'm going to show you what I mean. We see first in these first three chapters the dominant, dominant, dominant theme of suffering. We see it in the suffering of John himself. Do you see this in chapter 1, verse 9, where the apostle John says that he is a fellow companion in suffering and patient endurance. That he is a fellow companion in suffering and patient endurance. In fact, according to tradition, John writes this letter Uh, in the the book of Revelation alludes to it, he writes this letter from an island, the island of Patmos, in which he has been, according to tradition, placed in exile, kind of in um, sort of a prison, you know? Strand you on a desert island in the middle of the ocean with no boat, and you don't need prison walls to contain you, you know? Unless you're a very, very, very good swimmer, see? It is John's exile That is the context of his writing. But we don't even see just the suffering of John. We also see the suffering of Jesus in this text. In fact, it is in the forefront of John's mind. We see it in chapter 1, verse 5, that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. We see it in chapter 1, verse 7, that every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. This here is an allusion to Zechariah 12, verse 10, where the prophet says, one day they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will look on the one whom they have killed. And in chapter 1, verse 17, in the vision that John gives of Jesus, saying that Jesus was once dead, but now he is alive forevermore. In these images, what we see is that Jesus himself has suffered, although we also see in these images Images that Jesus has not only suffered, but it is in his suffering that he is conquering. You see? He who is dead and yet who is now alive forevermore. But we not only see the suffering of John, we not only see the suffering of Jesus, we see the suffering of the church. And here, unlike the suffering of Jesus, the tension is not relieved. For the suffering of the church has not yet, even to this day, been vindicated in glory. The church is the expanding group of people who believe that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected and coming again Son of God as we celebrated last week on Easter. But you see, the church is still in the tension point of the two comings of Christ. In the first coming, where he pays for the sins of the people and dies a death he didn't deserve and rises from the dead, promising to return. And in the second return, in which he returns in glory and victory to forever and finally defeat evil. But the church is in between these two comings. And at various times, 
in the history of the church. We have experienced suffering at different levels. But John makes it clear the suffering of his audience. And you can look at it. In chapter 2, verse 3, John commends the church at Ephesus for enduring hardship. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, John tells the church at Smyrna that he is aware of their suffering and he is aware of their poverty, their financial poverty. And he warns them not to be afraid of what they are yet to suffer. In fact, John is telling them, in light of all that you've already gone through, I don't know if you and I would find this all that comforting, would we? I know you are suffering a lot. It's about to get worse. Yes? Now, John does, I think it's a symbolic number, he puts a limit to their suffering, doesn't he? You are yet to suffer another 10 days. To which we all think, what does that mean? You know? John says that the church at Pergamum is suffering in chapter 2, verse 13. In fact, John says of the church of Pergamum that Satan himself has made his throne there. Obviously, this is figurative language in some sense. But John commends the church at Pergamum and says that they are faithful in spite of the difficulty that they have endured. In fact, one of their very own, a man named Antipas, who was a Christian, was killed. In chapter 3, verse 10, John commends the church of Philadelphia for enduring patiently the suffering of the church. But the book is not just about suffering. The book is about encouragement to a suffering church to overcome, to patiently endure, or in many translations, including the one that you have in front of you, if you're using our copy, the blue Bible in front of you, to be victorious. This idea of overcoming, of final victory, is of paramount importance in the book of Revelation. We see it all over. In fact, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, this language of victory or overcoming is used at the end of every single address to the churches. In fact, the address to the churches always begins in a very formulaic way. To the angel at the church of Ephesus write... And then he writes something. He starts by describing Jesus in all kinds of different ways. He goes on and he often commends the church for their good deeds, for their faithfulness in spite of persecution. He does this five times. Two churches are not commended. He then goes on to say some things that are not going well. And he says, I commend you, but I have this against you. He does this in all but one instant, or two instances. He does this in all but two instances where he com- doesn't uh, say anything negative about the church at Smyrna or the church at Philadelphia. He then moves on and says, to the one who is victorious or to the one who overcomes, they will. You see? In chapter 2, verse 7, John tells the church at Ephesus that to the one who overcomes, they will eat. From the tree of life to the church at Smyrna, he says and promises that they will not experience the second death if they overcome. To the church of Pergamum, he promises to the one who overcomes a hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. To the church at Thyatira, he promises the morning star. 
to the church at Sardis, he promises that their name will not be blotted out of the book of life, but that Jesus will acknowledge them before his father. To the church of Philadelphia, he promises that they will be made a pillar in the temple, in the heavenly temple. And to the church at Laodicea, he promises the right to sit with Jesus on his throne in the same way that Jesus sat on the throne with his father, overcoming. John wrote to encourage a suffering church to overcome because, and here's my two main points for my sermon, suffering is all around us and suffering forces us to make a choice. And I think of this sermon, I've thought about it a lot because I've been working on this Revelation series for weeks. And this sermon, I think, it feels, I want to make it as personal as I can and as rooted in our reality as possible. Because whether we see suffering or not, and whether we acknowledge and recognize the choices we make, suffering is an ever-present reality that is all around us. And it forces us to make a choice. Christianity has never ignored suffering. And John doesn't hear. In fact, the book of Revelation describes terrible suffering. In just a few weeks, we'll look at the trumpet judgments. And in the trumpet judgments, just about a third of everything on the earth will be wiped out. The author says, John says. Suffering is is what Revelation is about. Suffering in the present, suffering in the future. And we all have to come to face suffering in our lives. It's to varying degrees, but all of us have points in our life where we recognize that the world is not the way it's meant to be and that evil exists alongside of beauty. Perhaps some of you had a Horrible childhood. Perhaps some of you didn't. Uh, I can remember the first time I came face to face with real suffering. Not the kind of suffering where somebody picks on you at school and says they're going to throw you in a locker room. Uh, And I had that happen to me a few times, or like the locker. But I'm 6'4". It never felt that threatening to me, you know. But, you know... We all have to come to face with it. I remember the first time for me that I really recognized that this world is terribly, terribly broken was when I went to college at Moody Bible Institute and I lived in Chicago and every single time I went through my door, I saw people missing limbs that were asking for money, people who weren't missing limbs that were asking for money. People were always asking for money. And I can remember seeing and hearing the experiences of people that... uh, The truth is, I know my mom will listen to this and my dad. They gave me a good life and I was protected and sheltered from most evil that exists in this world. But there comes a point in all of us. It's to varying degrees when we experience suffering. And if you notice that suffering has a way of making philosophers out of all of us. Suffering kind of forces us to ask the question, why? Or as a a little 11-year-old girl asked in a recent novel I wrote, after her father left with the dental hygienist, why does the world exist? You know, what is the meaning of the universe? 
And suffering exists in all kinds of different ways. It exists in there being too little food for everyone to eat, even though there's enough food for everybody to eat. And it exists in the loss of a spouse, a parent, a sibling, of children to death. And it exists in the loss of siblings and parents and children to divorce and estrangement. It exists in rape in greed and in violence. And suffering forces us to ask, what is the meaning of life? The book of Revelation is meant to address this question. What is the meaning of life in light of so much difficulty? In John's day, the church was experiencing religious persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire and persecution from within its own ranks, as you'll see in just a moment, at the demands of false teachers who were tempting them towards compromise. Compromise theologically, compromise sexually, compromise financially, and compromise in all kinds of other ways. John knew then, and we know now, that the church would face suffering. But he knew something else about suffering. He knew that suffering forces us to make a choice. Suffering forces us to make a choice. And the choice is really simple. Will you compromise or will you, or will you overcome, endure faithfully, or will you be overcome? Will you compromise? Will you overcome or will you be overcome? Will you endure faithfully or will you compromise? And life is constantly giving us this choice, a choice that we must choose. Will we be faithful or will we compromise? Will we be faithful or will we compromise? The church in John's day made all kinds of choices and we can see them and I'll point, I'll point them out to you. Two of them stayed completely faithful, the church at Philadelphia and the church of Smyrna. And yet the church of Smyrna, the Bible tells us, experienced the most extreme poverty. One of the churches, John has nothing positive to say at all. The last church that is referred to in chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. John says about them that they are neither hot or cold, but they are lukewarm and therefore he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Did you know the language here of being neither hot or cold is not referring to them being on fire for Jesus or being really not on fire for Jesus? Hasn't that always seemed a little weird to you? Uh, What he's referring to here is, have you ever had a drink and it's lukewarm and it's just nasty? You know, you have hot coffee and you expect it to be hot. You have cold ice water, you expect it to be cold, but sometimes every so often you go to the tap water And somebody before you had it on lukewarm, you know, had it because they were washing their hands and you drink that water and you spit it out of your mouth. Laodicea was famous for having hot springs and for having cold springs, hot or cold. And you're neither, you're, you're useless. When I taste you, you're disgusting and I spit you out of my mouth. And so John has nothing positive to say about them. He says that they are financially wealthy and they are completely apathetic. 
The other four are a mixture of faithfulness and compromise. And in this, I feel like it is a little more true to most of our experience. A mixture of faithfulness and compromise. I'm amazed sometimes at my own ability to live in both worlds. You see? My ability to do things of kindness and respond graciously, and then my ability to lose my control at times. Faithfulness and compromise. The church at Ephesus had persevered during hardship. They had stayed faithful to some way to Christ, even during the most difficult of times, and yet John says that they had lost their passion, that they had become apathetic and uncaring, The church at Pergamum had stayed faithful to Jesus in a place where John said Satan had made his very throne, but yet had allowed false teachers into their midst who encouraged them to fall into sexual immorality. And they did. The church at Thyatira had grown spiritually. The text says that they did more good now than they did in the beginning. And yet, they tolerated a false prophetess whose name was Jezebel, who led people into idolatry and sexual immorality. The church at Sardis had an incredible reputation for following God. And yet, John said their reputation did not match their deeds. That there are a few who had stayed faithful, but most Works, their works were dead, for they had fallen into apathy. Apathy and sexual immorality and idolatry, these are the compromises that John makes explicit that the church of his day was falling into. And yet, I think we, if not vigilant, if not careful, will fall into the same pitfalls. Have you noticed in life that no one ever drifts into what is good? We always drift into unhealthy behavior. We never drift towards the good. We drift towards apathy. We drift towards sexual immorality. We can drift towards replacing God with other things, idolatry. But we do not drift towards faithfulness. And yet, you get the picture as you read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, especially in some of the churches with the last one, Laodicea, you get the feeling that Laodicea was content, Laodicea was content and comfortable. You get the feeling that these churches did not completely realize their danger, the danger of apathy and the danger of sexual immorality and the danger of idolatry. Because the pathway of compromise dulls our minds. And the pathway of compromise leads us to a measure of happiness that will never lead you to overcoming in victory. The pathway of compromise has its rewards, but the rewards are not fulfilling and they are fleeting. Have you ever had goals in your life 
that become ultimate things, the things that you're working towards. It could be the new promotion, the next promotion at work. It could be finishing college. I can remember when I was going through college, I thought the whole time I was there, I cannot wait to graduate college and get to the next phase. And I thought in undergrad that seminary is just going to be so much better than undergrad. I'm going to learn so much more about the Bible, you know? And then I thought when I was in seminary, I'm so sick of learning, I just can't wait to get into ministry and do my thing, you know? And whenever we reach that next thing, if that next thing is anything other than enduring faithfulness to God, we will ultimately find it less than satisfying. Have you ever listened or watched something or just had this experience where you thought to yourself, I'm about to learn what I really need to know. And then after you thought you'd learn it, you didn't. And you're still just as unsatisfied. Man, I am so encouraging this morning, aren't I? Revelation is speaking to us. And it is calling us to consider our lives. In life, we are all searching for meaning and significance. And Revelation is telling us that you cannot find it in any other place than enduring faithfulness to Jesus Christ, no matter what life may bring. The book of Revelation is designed to answer all kinds of other questions, and I'm really excited to tell you about all of it. It's designed to answer the question, will Jesus' people endure? Because it introduces you to the people of Jesus here in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you're not sure if they will. It's designed to answer the question, who will inherit the world? What is its purpose? It's designed to answer why is faithfulness to Jesus described as overcoming, as victory? It's designed to answer how did Jesus achieve victory in the first place and what does that mean for how we to our overcome or to achieve victory? And it's designed to answer the question, how will the world respond to the coming of the conquering king, Jesus? These are all questions that the book of Revelation is meant to answer and that we will get to in the weeks to follow. But this morning, I want to close by asking you to consider one final question that really, I hope you meditate on the rest of this week. And by meditate, what I mean by that is that you slow down, you get somewhere quiet, it can be right before bed, you breathe slowly, and you reflect on this question. Are you willing to be faithful to Christ in the present with no more assurance than faith can provide? I've been thinking about this for a while. Are you willing to be faithful to Christ in the present with no more assurance than faith can provide? Revelation 1 through 3, it is a promise a promise that I believe is certain. But as yet, it is an unfulfilled promise. A promise of overcoming, although the overcoming is not yet fully complete. 
In theological language, the victory is certain and it is accomplished, but it is not yet realized. Because of what Jesus has done, it is accomplished. Because of what Jesus has done, it is certain, but it is not yet realized. The church lives in between the two returns of Christ. And while it lives between those two returns, it lives in a time in history in which there is the sphere of God and light, and there is the sphere of evil and darkness. And every time you come up against the darkness, you are forced to make a choice. Will I be faithful or will I compromise? Every single time. Will I be faithful or will I compromise? And you may think differently than me. You may be a different place in your life. I'm not going through an abnormally difficult time right now. In fact, I'm going through an abnormally good time. But life is not a rocket ship to the moon. It ebbs and it flows. And I've noticed in life that the times when I make good decisions are not in the spur of the moment when the thing happens to me, but when I reflect beforehand and say, this is what I will do when it happens. Truth is, when I eat well, it's not because I decided I like greens better than I like burgers. I always like burgers better than spinach. It's because the night before I decided I was going to eat this because I know it's good for me. When I make good financial decisions, it's not because I didn't want the thing. It's because I decided beforehand I have this amount of money and I'm not going to buy what I can't afford. You see? And when we make good decisions to follow Jesus, it is not in the midst of of times when we are tempted with apathy and sexual immorality and, uh, you know, idolatry of choosing other things other than God. It is not in those moments when we are presented with the choice that we have the clarity to think well about what we will do. And so I don't want, for you or for me, And as your pastor, I don't want you to wait until those moments. I want you to reflect this week and now. Are you willing to endure faithfully in the present with no more assurance than what faith provides? Faith is not a lesser way of having confidence, although it may feel like that to some. It is not a lesser way of knowing, but it is a different way of knowing. Will you decide beforehand that I will be faithful to Jesus no matter what this topsy-turvy, cattywampus world may do? The book of Revelation is designed, as we continue, to tell you, in some ways, what is coming both the bad and the overwhelming good for those who overcome. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit,